Trauma Healing Learnings based on one mom's journal entries recorded in real time from a catastrophic event with her son that you've been listening to in the blink of an eye story. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. I want to welcome you to our first trauma healing learning of the season. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to remind you about our Patreon community. If you're interested in financially supporting the podcast and getting a head start on episodes before everyone else, take a look at our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash blink of an eye pod and consider a monthly membership for early episodes and other perks. We've got different levels of membership from just $5 a month to higher levels. And if you're interested in being one of our ad sponsors or know of an organization or corporation or entity that would be interested, please write me at louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com for a sponsorship sheet. I hope you enjoyed our first episode of the season, a recap of season two. Today, we will take a look behind the scenes into the makings and workings of the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation, otherwise known as I See That. I See That is a nonprofit I launched with other amazing leaders inspired by the blink of an eye story, focused on trauma healing and building a national resource for spinal cord injury families and medical teams across the United States in the first hours of crisis. Did you know there are about 6,090 hospitals in the United States? Yeah. And guess how many of those hospitals are spinal cord injury hospitals? 69. That's right. Only 69. There are 18,000 spinal cord injuries annually in the United States. And over a million five hundred Americans are living with spinal cord injury. The vast majority of these injuries come from living life, driving, or on vacation, or recreating in sports. Across the country, families and medical teams need spinal cord injury crisis support and expertise on the front end, and that is what I see that is working to provide. Medical spinal cord injury expert opinions in the first hours, what the military calls the golden hour, to assist medical teams across the country to accurately assess an injury, to get the injured person to the right care, the expert care, and with a focus on the family as well. I see that will provide spiritual, emotional, mental, logistical, and medical navigation support for spinal cord injury families in the first 30 days from injury. I see that 
will be a national triage and support during crisis to many other specialized spinal cord injury foundations, hospitals, and groups so that the devastating spinal cord injury crisis moments can be an extraordinary experience rather than a hopeless experience to help families survive. In today's episode, you'll hear conversations with Navy Admiral Tom Beeman, former COO of the University of Pennsylvania Medical System and current chair of Alvernia Hospital Science and Humanities Center. Dr. Chris Radcliffe, a spine surgeon from the Rothman Institute in Philadelphia, who was Archer's spine surgeon in our crisis. And Dr. Justin Tortolani, the Chief of Spine Surgery at St. Joseph's Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. All are part of the IC That Board as advisors or trustees to advance the mission of providing the extraordinary experience in spinal cord injury crisis for families and medical staff. You'll hear how they got involved, why they got involved, and what gap they believe I see that is addressing for spinal cord injury families and medical teams throughout the United States. You'll hear about the national hotline and the resource library they are building that you may want to take part in as well. So, settle in, take a deep breath, and get ready to learn so you can tell your friend or family in the event they face a spinal cord injury crisis. After all, 80% of spinal cord injuries happen when we're just living our daily lives. Welcome to Trauma Healing Learning One, the makings of a startup spinal cord injury nonprofit, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing Advocacy and Transformation. Featuring retired Rear Admiral Tom Beeman and Drs. Chris Radcliffe and Justin Tortolani. In this first interview excerpt, you will hear from Dr. Tortolani about his experience reading the Archer blogs, how I approached him about I See That, and the gap he believes I See That fills when it comes to spinal cord injury advocacy and care. Although you and I really never met until our long walk, I, I certainly knew you and your family's story because I'd heard you speak and and read all your 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 blogs as Archer was going through his 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 tumultuous uh, post injury time. But I think a lot of us in Baltimore really were able to stay connected in a way through what you wrote during those times. So. It allowed us to all learn a lot about it and, and share and empathize and pray and connect and relate to you, which was really impactful for, I think, all of us in this community. I'm wondering what it was like for you as a spine surgeon reading those blogs uh, about those not only first few hours, but days and weeks and then months. What was it like for you with all the knowledge that you have about the spine? Well... I mean, it was tough on some levels because I could see the future that lied ahead for Archer and for you. 
and know a lot about how challenging those times could be. And so my heart ached in a way for what was happening at the time and, you know, his lungs being filled with seawater and not knowing whether or not he was going to ever be extubated and not knowing exactly what his mental status was going to be. So, you know, those, those sorts of things, they really, really pull at you and, you know, kind of only wondering really what it's like as a family member to be going through that. And as a patient going through that, you know, my experience with it is, is as a provider, not as, you know, a family member or as the patient, obviously. So that, that part was really, really tough. You know, on the other hand, as, as you know, you and I have now spoken, I've learned more about, I see that you realize that there is a tremendous need, you know, there is this, this time where there are so many boxes that are open for patients and their families in the immediate aftermath from an injury. And you realize as, as a medical community that we're like so far behind on how we can be supportive for patients and their families in this type of scenario. So, you know, I didn't have the, the ability to, kind of see what you are going to be able to develop and how you're able to impact others now going forward at that time, but can certainly see it much more clearly now. Mm. And you've been able to identify and, and create this kind of finite niche and identified need. Whereas I think for a long time, you know, as individual providers, we're so focused on our one specific thing that we need to work on. And we're not looking at this problem holistically. And you've been able to kind of create some boundaries around that and define the problem in a, in a kind of a clear way for us to think more about. I think you were very instrumental in helping me even get clearer I, I felt in our experience, and, I, and I'm feeling the impact of personalization to a professional experience, that it can just be incredibly meaningful. And I, I know for us that it was so much later when we were beginning to be introduced and knowledgeable about spinal cord injury as a as a thing you know just what all that means but also about other amazing organizations and what they have but we had a long way to go until we could like get there to be able to you know take advantage of the type of physical therapy you know or the type of occupational therapy or to even be eligible you know for a grant for school and we we had to you know, make it and, and stay alive and, and, and be in, in good enough shape to be able to then participate or take advantage of those things. And it was really there that I, not at the time, but, you know, years later and reflecting back and still living this, realized that there was this gap that uh, of, of knowledge and of resources from a medical knowledge perspective, 
And then also, as you just you know highlighted, what we needed as family, spiritually and emotionally and logistically, relationally, all these pieces. And that's, that's what I had hoped um, I see that might be able to fill, fill in. And so it was, it was just really valuable to hear your perspective after being the spine doc for so many on that. Let's talk a little bit more about that, that, that gap, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. what, what are the insights that, that you bring to, to this gap from your perspective as a provider and, and what it is that may have been missing that we can fill in? Well, first of all, there's this need for expertise in an incredibly immediate post-injury scenario. And most of these injuries happen out in nature, whether it's at the beach, whether it's in the woods, whether it's on a country road and someone driving a car, you know, these are, these are rarely controlled scenarios. Yeah. People just live in their ordinary lives and oftentimes recreating or vacationing. That's right. Uh Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and it's most of these are either recreational injuries or it's a motor vehicle crash. And so you're in a, an uncontrolled environment. Your initial early responders may not have a lot of experience because these are not happening like a heart attack or a stroke every weekend in your community or multiple times in a weekend in, in your community. So because of the rarity, there's a lack of understanding and expertise and experience so there's this immediate post-injury how do you number one make sure the patient survives or the person survives the initial but then how can how can you get them safely to expert care which is kind of the first step and then from there it's it's like a bomb goes off not just for the patient but for their family because nobody is prepared for this Yes. No emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, physically, you know, all there, there, this impacts every corner of our human experience and, and, and no one can really be prepared for it unless you've gone through it. And, and so there's no, there's no medical institution in the world that can make any claim to having expertise in all the touch points that are required to really manage this. So, so that I think is a, a massive need. That's where the gap lies. I think once patients kind of get through the first 30 days of you've, if you've, as you have described, they're kind of in rehab, they're kind of moving along the dust settles. Families can start to figure out how they're going to, be prepared at home and that sort of thing. But those first 30 days, I think if it's probably very similar to loss of a loved one where, you know, there's these various stages of grieving and part of it's even denial where you can't even believe it's happening. Psychologically, your brain won't allow you to quite believe it's happening. And then there's all those other stages that you go through. And I'm not saying 30 days it ends. I just think 30 days the dust starts to settle. And most of the acute needs happen the first 30 days. 
but you could probably speak to it better than I. Then there's like the first 90 days and then there's the next year. And then like, there's the thinking about, okay, what's five, 10, 20, 40, 60 years look like after that. Where, where we are right now is exactly as you've described, trying to fill in that really two, two gaps in the, in the crisis period. Uh, one, the medical knowledge gap. Shall we talk about the medical expertise right now? Sure. Yeah, because we, we, have some real, we have some real dreams about it and what we're putting together right now with the spinal cord injury expert team and that national team of experts. You, you want to talk about as we're envisioning that, what that would look like? Yeah, so I think I would look at this as sort of like a special ops team for immediate deployment following injury. Um, yeah, exactly. This know. is like, it is like a combat zone. Yeah, no sort of like the, the SEAL Team 6 metaphor. Yeah, so yeah. immediate expertise in the trenches, whether it's surgical, whether it's anesthetic, whether it's radiological, um, whether it's psychological, um, neurological, you know, those are probably the five big groups of expertise that's needed immediately. Um, and, and then, and then how can you create that group, that, that force that's available, but also make it accessible? Um, because assembling the group is probably easier than figuring out how to make that group accessible immediately everywhere. Like, was there a point where you had this realization, like, we have a room for a major intervention here that can help thousands of people. Like, when did that dawn on you? And how did that dawn on you? How did that come to your consciousness? It, it was a bit of an unfolding. Um, <laughs> I was connected to the CRISPR. Uh, I asked actually to be connected to the CRISPR and Dana Reeve Foundation because I felt that they were the, you know, the first, the largest, the, as I was learning more and more about them, the leaders in spinal cord injury. And I, I just knew I wanted to give back in some way, even though we weren't out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. I was also really inspired by people like you and, and thousands of others who had read the Archer blogs and they would write me and say, you know, uh -huh. we haven't heard from you. Like, how, how's your son? How are you? You know, what, what, what's next kind of thing. And so say. that was very much a part of the kind of the, I don't know, what would you call that? The gestalt of everything that was uh -huh. happening. So I thought I would reach out to the Reef Foundation and they, they reached back for which I was grateful and a little bit of time went by and then they said that they had gotten a grant from Hollister, which is a catheter company and we use Hollister products for Archer and they Hollister wanted to do something as a give back also because I had reached out to them I'd like to give back in some way for families and they said would you like to do a brochure 
And I said, I would love to do a brochure on advocacy, um, relational advocacy, because actually I'm realizing two things. We, we haven't had a chance to talk about the medical silos uh, that I experienced. Mm -hmm. And I know you and I yes. have talked about that before. Um, mm -hmm. And I'll get back to that in a second. And then also why doctors might withhold hope. Uh, we didn't really circle back mm -hmm. to that either. But they asked if I do a, a brochure. I did. And then uh, the, the next step after that, I didn't know there would be a next step. They asked if I would do a webinar, which I did. And then they began to receive a number of phone calls. And they, I think it was unanticipated because they have an amazing Ask a Nurse program. But they, were, they were getting calls from people who were in the crisis. Right. And they weren't sure um, how to field those calls. Anyway, I, I then got called uh, weeks, perhaps even a month or more later and learned of many calls that really had been, they didn't have the apparatus in place to respond. And I said, I would love to respond to them and I would be, I, I would be willing to respond to them. And so we, we created a, a short uh, memorandum of understanding between us and I worked with 22 families over about four and a half months. And it was then, wow. they were all over the country. They wow. were in, in different circumstances. Every single one was unique. And I wow. felt like I was completely at home. It required mm -hmm. a lot of the mediation skill set that I had and just mm -hmm. this tenacious belief in, in what was possible and how they could actually engage with doctors everybody thinks that you can't and when doctors would say this is never gonna happen or you've got to you know kind of give that up I'd say you know you've got to ask about that and that's not necessarily true and I was I was very much in heaven and it was also I wanted to be able to do it in the evenings and that was not part of what the Reef Foundation thought would be a good idea so that happened and then I said I would like to help create a program and they they did some assessment and some analysis and said it was just it was just really too messy uh, because it did it involved legalities it involved insurance it involved insurance mm -hmm. appeals I mean all the stuff that I see that is now going to do help people with you know this to mm -hmm. educate people and so it was then that I that knew so in my heart I I would do this. And if others just couldn't at that time, I wanted to fill in the gap. And so that so that's what happened. A couple of years went by and I started Blink of an Eye because I also being asked if I was going to write another book. And I didn't think I had the bandwidth to do that while we're trying to get our lives back together and take care of Arch at the same time and our other four children. So mm -hmm. it, I was then reminded of it all over again as I got back into my own writings and it was just a, a matter of time. Blink of an eye. It was only about four or five months old when I started going around and asking people if they thought it would be a good idea and if they would consider being on a board of trustees as we began to put it together. So that's how it, that's how it came about. The next interview excerpt you will hear is from Navy Admiral Tom Beeman former COO of UPenn Medical System and current chair of Alvernia University's Science and Humanities Center. He was present for part of Archer's care 
later in the story at Penn. He will expand on the need for I See That support services in the first 30 days of any trauma and the importance of adapting leadership to the needs of a crisis. I think that focusing on, uh, as you said, the blink of an eye or the the, the, the golden hour, uh, which is something that resonates with me being in the military, our success rate in OIF and OEF, uh, the two wars that we just recently fought, is if we got uh, folks off the battlefield within the golden hour, we had a 98% save rate. 98%. The highest in history. It, it was it's phenomenal results, and that came from med- strategically located medical teams and well-trained personnel in the field that knew what to do. But having said that, I think the critical piece to all of this, and we'll probably get into this more, is that's talking about the person that was injured. But we, we forget when trauma hits, it hits not only the individual, but all of their support team. It, it, it hits their family in the community in which they live. And that day, nothing will be the same for any of those people once it hits. And the same goes for the medical team. Uh, and the medical team is, is trained uh, strategically to handle the medical emergency, the, the traumatic emergency, but they can't handle the family trauma that's occurring all around them. One person, one family cannot bear this alone. It takes an entire community to bear this burden and, and, and turn it into something that's not a burden, but turn it into something that's life-giving and special. Yes, that's that whole, you know, family systems approach and belief. And, and if you could speak to your role as our, as our chair and really helping me to launch this nonprofit. And as we thought through what I see that could be and what it would look like, could you speak about your role and why, why you stepped up, why you said yes? Sure. Well, one, Louise, is that you're very compelling. (laughs) 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 And, And no is not in your lexicon. So having said that, you know, what a thrill to get something started uh, to really take help someone you care about and their family and create something that will have some lasting impact, hopefully on a national basis. As far as I can tell, nothing like this exists uh, now. Certainly it, it hasn't existed in our region because we would have known about it and called upon it when we needed it, but what, it wasn't there. And really that's the reason why we, we uh, agree that we should start I See That to create a support system for this wonderful podcast that you have, uh, but more importantly, be able to send out into the community, you know, responders that can really start to meet the support needs uh, of families and those impacted so heavily. And don't underestimate the trauma uh, that care providers have too. Uh, We've seen that a lot with COVID and the, just the physical exhaustion of, of our care providers uh, was certainly in trauma. This uh, is no different. Supporting them and their requirements, I think, is paramount. So I'm hoping that uh, aspirationally that I see that with the illustrious board that you've put together, Louise, will be able to sustain, maintain and sustain and thrive this initiative over time. You gave us such direction and gravitas and really helped me think through whom we should be 
cultivating and inviting very much a hand selected process for uh, the right people on this uh, board, especially because as a new startup, it's messy. We know that, you know, we, we form, we, we storm, we norm, we storm again, and people who would be up to that collaborative task. You know, a lot of people aren't. They're brilliant and, and, and geniuses, but they might not have the, the stamina or the wherewithal for the creative uh, juices and also the pivoting or the flexibility or the shedding that needs to happen when you're uh, creating something that you see as having great potential. What's emerging is this idea that I see that will be filling this gap and really has differentiated itself for this, what we might call in the military, the golden hour. I love, as you called it, this crisis period of time when, you know, the call is made or the, you know, the fracture happens. And as you also mentioned, not only for the injured person, but the impact on the family in that moment and on a medical team who will be caring for that family and our focus being in those moments, hours, and then the 30 days thereafter. How do you envision that our work will unfold as we look ahead in the years to come? I think first and foremost, we need to get perspective. E.E. Cummins said in Dewey Finzer, uh, as familiar as an old mistake and futile as regret. You know, when trauma happens to us, to a family, to a person, uh, you, can't, you can't go back. It's happened. It's how you deal with that uh, that's going to matter. It's, it's what people understand and feel in the first hour of uh, this, you know, life-changing event that will make a lot of difference in the way we deal with it going forward. And I think part of the experience uh, that everyone on the board brings to the table, they're both care providers as well as people who have experienced significant trauma, is to bring those experiences to bear and say, what are the things that we need to make life better for those people having this shared experience that we've had? Having the right kind of counselors, making sure that people get the medical opinions that they need. You know, not everybody in the country is set up to take care of level one trauma spinal cord injuries. Uh, you know, we probably have a handful of top level spinal cord centers in the United States. And so, in, in, indeed, actually, I mean, we now know, right? We, we know there yeah. are about over 6,000 hospitals, but only. 6,090 hospitals, and only yeah. 69 of those hospitals have trauma centers. And and of those trauma centers, they don't all have spinal cord injury expertise. No, they, they don't. So knowing that and knowing how to access quickly the kind of expertise that's required to really mitigate further damage within the first golden hour, uh, but also get the, the support. I mean, if you think about a care team, uh, that's uh, faced with somebody with severe trauma, the care team's primary responsibility is not to the family. It's to the, it's to the person requiring the care. That leaves a group of people completely out of the process, uh, trying to process their own feelings, their feelings of fear, their feelings of dread, their feelings of profound change. And 
I think the whole reason why this was started is to make sure that people get the right information that they need, but also the support that they need during those really important periods of time during the beginning of, of trauma, uh, when a spinal cord injury is meaning a tremendous change in the person's life. And then how do you channel that energy and everything uh, to create a, a greater good despite this terrible tragedy that has occurred? And I, I think that's what we want to do. That's the intent of this. You've been indefatigable in, in trying to make sure that that happens. And I think now with the board and others, you have a partner partnership that will help continue this important work. It is. It's exciting to think that we will marry the understandings and the new understandings that will continue to unfold in trauma and trauma healing with spinal cord injury. And then from that focus on spinal cord injury in the blink of an eye hour, we can then expand back again as a resource to others, anyone who is experiencing trauma, which of course is what the podcast blink of an eye is about, you know, with all of the trauma healing learnings there for everyone. The next person I interviewed comes from the start of our Blink of an Eye story. You may recognize his name from Season 1 and Season 2, Dr. Chris Radcliffe. Dr. Radcliffe is currently a spine surgeon at the Rothman Orthopedic Institute in Philadelphia and was one of Archer's surgeons in his first hours at Atlantic Care Hospital in Atlantic City, New Jersey. In this excerpt, we talk about I See That's medical initiatives and the nuances of treating spinal cord injuries. We really have come full circle with the creation of this new nonprofit, I see that, and absolutely, yeah, bringing you in with your expertise, and I really look forward to this conversation because not only are you a spine surgeon with a great deal of expertise, but I personally experienced you and witnessed you and what you were also willing to do, and and also what was you know, outside uh, the capabilities of all of us at the time and what we might consider filling in now when we have an opportunity to possibly fill in a really needed gap in the spinal cord injury experience in those first hours for families. I think the story of how, like, some of the uh, advanced trauma life support system was implemented, it was by actually an orthopedic surgeon. And within... Within medicine, orthopedics is such a specialized niche area that we often are um, are the, the butt of jokes from our medical colleagues that we have very little knowledge about the rest of the body, and it's it's unfortunately often true. And so it's 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 surprising that an orthopedic surgeon he, he was I believe he was um, involved in a, in a plane crash in a rural area in the West, and his family uh, had there were some serious injuries and and. His family ended up at a at a hospital, in kind of a rural area that was not necessarily at the time prepared and capable of caring for people with trauma um, needs. And so, 
uh, as, as a result of that experience, he he kind of advocated and lobbied for the creation of this this system to kind of standardize how trauma patients are evaluated across the country and indeed across the world. And and the whole idea is that there are there are kind of critical windows where you have to identify certain things. And if you don't identify those critical things early, then then they can get out of control and a bad outcome can happen. And and so it it's really uh, and so and so the, the concept is to do multiple surveys and to kind of think about just finding serious things and, and tackling them and then checking off boxes and it's it's done in kind of a list format. That's how we do a lot of things in medicine, just so that we you know checklists are are, are, are helpful. And that's how I I think you kind of approach spinal cord injury care as well. You know, for for me, I mean, I've done enough of the, you know, these, I've treated enough patients who have have had spinal cord injuries that, you know, in in my mind, I kind of have a checklist of the information that I want to communicate at various stages after the injury has occurred. You know, I I think that it's, it's, it's medical information and and medical facts. And a, a lot of it has to do with just explaining, like you said, what we know and what we don't know and what like can't be known at various time points but conveying that information in a way that preserves hope and so there there certainly is a is a need i think and now that i think about it i'm surprised it doesn't already exist but there there is a need for some sort of other i think service or agency to aid in the 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 kind of you know trauma and, and grief and and struggle that both the spinal cord injury patients themselves and their families grapple with. It really occurred to me, and it was it was very obvious that the medical team in those first hours were totally focused on Archer, appropriately so. And we were reeling and there was no place to get information, not even being able to see him or be with him. And yeah. then, right? And, and when, we, when we first met you, it was actually after uh, the surgery. But just the uh, advocacy that it took to try and see Archer before the surgery or just to get snippets of information for what was, you know, happening in the OR room or what was happening in the preparation or what was happening, you know, as in the, in the EMS and what was happening on the helicopter or what was, there was just no information coming to the family. And that was enormously disconcerting, but you were after the surgery, the very first person whom I had any uh, encounter with and when we asked for a family meeting, you were, you were very compassionate and, and, and saying a a couple, a couple things that I actually didn't hear it from any other doctors then or thereafter. And that was that we, we really needed to stick together as a family. And so you're exactly right. There's a, there's a critical kind of just, it's just got to do with the institutions we're tied to and, and, you know, the, the, the nature of, of when people become involved in care. One of the 
opportunities that we, we thought that I see that could provide to the medical teams across the country and to families, spinal cord injury families, is to have a national group of these yeah. spinal cord injury experts who could, in those hours, um, you know, through calling I see that, through a hotline, they could be deployed with somebody assigned to the family, which is what I was doing. I've worked with 22 families at this point as a more like wow. the, the conduit to get to these other people. But it, I see that grew because I was using, you know, my, my Rolodex, my, my database, yeah. my relationships of, you know, they, they, they were really concerned about you know this or about that and whom could I connect them to or whom could I talk to yeah. and then bring that information to them because in, in just the fastest kind of way when they're also very distressed and then, Absolutely. And then working yeah. with, you know, as you mentioned, the, the emotional pieces and, and yes, I, I do think, by the way, that blaming piece, as well as the haunted by what could I or somebody else have done differently to have prevented this, spinal cord injury is so devastating yeah. that at some point, anybody affected, by and large, and it's part of the trauma experience, you begin to you know thaw, and then your brain starts yeah. going crazy. You know, just why didn't I think about this? Why, why'd we go on that vacation? Why didn't I listen to my sister when she said the flights were too expensive? Why did we, why'd we stop for gas, you know, there? Why didn't we keep on going? Just all the things that, you know, you just run through your head that could have prevented, as you mentioned, you know, whether it's an automobile accident or it's a sports injury or it's, you know, diving in the ocean or, you know, what these water injuries these spinal yeah. cord injuries happen while we're just living our lives. A lot of them involve boating injuries. A lot of aquatic accidents in general involve alcohol. And so I have seen quite a bit of just, you know, blame kind of in the immediate area about that, you know. And I mean, I've even seen, I, I remember a case I had, which was just a couple of kids who were wrestling and roughhousing on the beach. And, you know, like, I mean, it was innocent. It wasn't a, a, you know, fight out of animosity or anything. They were just being kids. And, uh, and, and, you know, one thing led to another thing and, and someone got, got really badly injured from it. And it's just, I just think it's really important in those situations that, that, you know, at least right afterwards that everyone just tries to focus on the patient, on the best interest of the patient, you remain optimistic. And yeah, the, the, the second guessing, I think, is, is somewhat inevitable and is part of being human. But, you, you know, I, I don't think it's a good idea in the first, first week, couple weeks yeah. if you could help it. With I See That, maybe we could help our listeners understand we really have these uh, three main prongs, you know, and one is the expert opinion group. And the other is the family support and navigation group. And what, what we know can be natural is not only blaming, but blaming related to deep loss and grieving. And to be yep. able to have our, our team trained in, in grief, uh, trained in conflict transformation, trained in trauma and trauma healing to help bring not only the cognitive, the intellectual, like what is 
what is perhaps most important right now for your son or for your husband or for your brother or for your best friend. It's often male is, is this. However, it is completely normal and natural to, to be second guessing and blaming. What is it, yep. you know, that's underneath that, that blame. And of course, what's underneath blaming is just deep pain and, and deep yep. loss. Yep. And so helping people to really know that that is held in a container, it might not be fully unpacked that week or that month, but to know that yep. it was identified and named and normalized and welcomed and that there can be other resources brought to that because we know through so much trauma that people carry their whole lives is how those horrible thoughts get internalized yeah. because they never have a Absolutely. place to go. So our family support and navigation team will not only be quite practical and the liaison for the medical expertise with all these multidisciplinary aspects of that, but will be multidisciplinary with regard to the trauma approach to people as they present and just supporting them all the all the way through you know people can scream and swear and blame and it's and to just have someone there to to hold that container and then also ask them if they would also like any help with the practical logistical decision making that needs to happen as a sounding board so it'll be a little yeah. messy and we intend for that because we know that's the space the third is a resource library that sure. can actually be accessed. Uh, we're going to work on an app on the tel on the phone that anybody, including our, our trauma navigators that are assigned to the families, can access ourselves. But it will be built not only with resources that are already out there and amazing other foundations, institutions working in the trauma and in the spinal cord injury space, but with families whom I will be interviewing for Blink of an Eye, asking them, you know, what was it that was most important that they heard that supported them in those first hours? You know, what was it for Great. families that they wish the medical teams had told them? So very quick, yep. you know, 30 second, one minute, three minutes max, little video snippets, YouTubes, if you will that families yeah. can make in the rough send, and then we will be shepherdizing and putting them together so that it's super easy to navigate with what it is that people are looking for. And then our, our teams also having that as a support and able to give that to families as well. You should, if I can make a suggestion, you yeah. should ask the caregivers also. I, I remember in your case, you asked me, is he going to be able to walk down the aisle? Certainly, you know, like there are a couple of questions like that that just are really, you know, appropriate, fair, reasonable, but are just really difficult to answer. You know, I, I think perhaps it it may be helpful for even for for the the docs and the teams in various places to be able to watch and say what was you know what were the top couple hard questions that you have were asked or have beautiful. been asked. Beautiful, it's so How beautiful. How did you handle that? Yeah. Yeah. So that, you know, when someone is about to go walk into a room, maybe they can watch a couple of YouTube snippets or something, you know, before they before they uh, they, they, they do that, because it's I think it's important to realize that, you know, 
I mean, underneath the white coat, underneath the scrubs, it's hard on the providers also. It's not easy. And I mean, it's hard work and it's, you know, you, you do the best you can, but it, it's, it certainly is. Um, and I mean, look, you know, not, not to make the docs or the team that the center of it all, I mean, the families and patients go through way much, much more, but it's just hard. So when, you know, when, when the patients are wondering, you know, how come this guy, you know, is not making great eye contact and is kind of stumbling over his words and everything, it might just be because it's hard for, for whatever doc to, to say, I'm kind of powerless here. I can't help you. And, you know, like the, I don't think you're going to like the answer that I'm going to have to give you. And so, so certainly maybe some, just some peer, peer videos may be very helpful in that regard. Yeah. It's, it's really beautiful because we intend for the resource library. A again, we are positioning, I see that to be a national resource for spinal cord yeah. injury families and medical teams so that the That's resource great. library will be there for the, again, sort of categorized in that way, you know, for the docs, for yeah. the nurses. Yeah. And I love how you just said, you know, the really, the really hard questions. You know, I remember, Chris, before even asking you the question, or or maybe it was after, but you know, if Archer, will, Arch, will, will Archer walk down the aisle? I remember asking you, will our son be able to have a family? It yeah. was just yeah. all I could think about you yeah. know because family to us and, and to me I was a mom having children is just it's it is strip and take everything away I'll have yeah. my my family my children and I know that must have just been a yeah a and you know I have family I mean you know it's, it's just one of those things that you you know as a person you get the gravity of of the situation you you want to you know I mean there's an impulse to just want to tell you know, the, the person, yeah, yeah, they'll be okay. But you know, you have to do the right thing professionally and you have to tell the truth. And it's just, it, I mean, there's no, you know, wrote textbook, right answer uh, other than just that. I think it's okay for the doc that I think every doc and every provider who walks into our room like that, you should probably expect one question that's just really going to hurt to answer. And, you know, like, just know that that's okay. And, yeah. You know, do the best you can and keep going. Maybe um, one I, of the resource library YouTubes can be always tell the truth. And and the truth is that we don't all know. Right? Yeah. So so to tell Absolutely. the truth might have been possibly to that question, you know, with the level of his injury, maybe not, but we just don't know. And we won't yeah. know right for for yeah. for weeks yeah. months even years because that that's the that's the full truth and maybe doctors that's can also find their vulnerability in that in those ways yeah really Agreed. i agree amazing you know what else has really been important for me and in the shaping of i see that now the nonprofit is that i think that healthcare was has been making progress moving to become more patient-centered. And then I, I think that, that what hasn't perhaps been fully completed, or maybe there's been a bit of a move. Some have spoken about being even family-centered. It's, it's much more, you know, a smaller subset. But for me, and granted, it's the mediator in me, I can't imagine being a medical provider 
and being fully patient-centered when we need to be medical provider and patient and family-centered. It's the relational centeredness because if people are working in trauma as medical practitioners a day in and day out, you know, there, that's a lot of, as you mentioned, it's a lot of stress and wear and tear on the provider. And then the family is in shock. And then the patient has, you know, his whole or her whole world turned upside down. It just seems yep. to me that if we can really, and therefore there's no need to be, have to be turfy about it any longer. It's that it's, it's all of that. And to and to create resources in this in these first hours and in thirty days that can really help all all three to become more trauma informed and taking care of of the truth, which is also taking care of you as a as a practitioner as a surgeon. Yeah. The patient practitioner family practitioner, practitioner to self relationships are central to I See That's Work and initiatives. Because at the heart of I See That's Work is an attempt to shift the current standard of care to a more trauma-informed standard of care, a more holistic standard of care in the first hours of injury and within the first 30 days for spinal cord injury patients their families, and medical teams. I see that aims to disrupt the current paradigm of response to spinal cord injury with the resources talked about in today's Trauma Healing Learning. And we'll share more exciting events, groups, and other opportunities in the future. I hope you enjoyed learning more about the origins of I See That and each board member's perspective on the mission. Thank you for listening in. As you may have noticed by now, Season 3 Trauma Healing Learnings are going to take a different format this season. Oh, they're still chock full of wisdom and applicable learnings, but they will also feature interviews with experts on a wide range of trauma healing modalities. The role of faith, dreams, integrative health, Angels, sound medicine, past lives, near-death experiences, homeopathy, mediumship, and many other topics that give us insight and hope into what is possible for trauma healing. So stay tuned for some exciting conversations and new ways to consider your own trauma healing. I am looking forward to our continued exploration and learning together. See you next week for episode two at the Shepherd Center and the week after for another trauma healing learning. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain you may tune in to the companion Blink of an Eye story at Season 3, 1, What Happens Now. Thank you for listening, 
And thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation. I See That is a multidisciplinary nonprofit that provides tangible support, trauma healing education, and advocacy for those experiencing crisis or trauma. To donate, please visit www.icthat.org. That's the letters I-C-T-H-A-T dot O-R-G.